You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Some of you may know somebody that has a piece of the Berlin Wall. Some of you might even have a piece of it yourself. Um, the Berlin Wall was a World War II, post-World War II effort. Uh, to put it very simply, um, to protect the rise of socialism and communism. Um, it was, yes, an effort to keep people from getting in, but it was more an effort of keeping people from getting out. And uh, if you're my age or older, you probably very well remember President Reagan's speech where essentially what he was saying to President Gorbachev was, if you actually really want peace, if you really want to tear down walls of division, then you've got to remove this wall. Tear down that wall. Well, if you travel to Jerusalem in the Apostle Paul's day, in Jesus' day, there was a wall there as well. Um, it was not nearly as tall or big or complex as the Berlin Wall. It was only like three or four feet high. A guy like myself might even be able to get over that wall. Um, it was in the, in the temple court. It, it wrapped around the entire temple, and it divided, it divided the outer court, which is referred to as the court of the Gentiles, from the inner court. And we now know that there were signs posted all over this wall that read, no Gentile permitted past this point on pain of death. In other words, if you're a Gentile and you cross over into the inner court, it is very, very likely that you will die. And so in one sense, like the Berlin Wall, there was a death strip. And if you were a Gentile, you didn't cross it. We've been in the letter to the Ephesians, all right? Paul wrote this letter from prison. And... Um, it is very much believed that Paul's arrest, his initial arrest, was because a riot broke out when it was suspected that Paul took a Gentile into the inner court. Why would Paul do this? Well, Paul expresses all throughout the New Testament that he was called to the Gentiles. Now, here's the very, very beautiful and powerful irony of this. Before the apostle Paul met Jesus Christ, Paul was a racist Paul was a racist of the, the highest kind. And as a Jew, but more importantly, as a Pharisee, the people that the Apostle Paul hated more than anyone else on the face of the earth were the Gentiles. And now he's called to the Gentiles. He's even trying to sneak them in to the inner court. And he's arrested for it. Why, why is he doing all this? Well, when Paul met Jesus, everything changed. Jesus, what he did was knock down all of the walls, the divisions, the barriers that were between Jew and Gentile. Jesus has knocked down the walls and barriers that divide us as well. And if we are in Christ, we uh, must ensure that those barriers and those walls and those divisions remain knocked down. This morning, um, as we keep going in Ephesians, we're going to see that these barriers and walls have absolutely no place among us, no place among those of us who are called to be one in Christ, one in Christ. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. 
Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, you, you were referred to as the uncircumcised by those who were circumcised, but then on the other hand, understand, they might be physically circumcised, but they don't yet understand that this is an issue of the heart and not of the flesh. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." Paul begins this part of the letter almost just like he began the last section at the beginning of chapter 2. He begins by reminding them who they were. He says, remember that you were alienated. Um, You were strangers. You were hopeless. There's that word again. You were without God. Also, though, like the section before this, he starts by saying, remember who you once were, but... And he makes this incredibly important transition. Look at verse 13. That's who you were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is who you were, but now in Christ... In Jesus Christ, through his cross, through the shedding of his blood, but now in Christ, you have been brought near to God. Now, through Jesus, God has broken down every wall of hostility. Every wall of hostility that we had between us and him. And where did that come from? It came from the curse of sin. And now in Jesus Christ, uh, we have had him make peace with God on our behalf. Jesus has brought us peace and reconciliation with God. But that's not all that Paul says here. Because he also tells us that God has brought us peace and reconciliation with one another. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So in fact, yes, Jesus has reconciled us to one another. And Paul uses language here that not only does he not use anywhere else in any of his letters, I don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. He says that Jesus has done all of this. And if you look at verse 16, he says he does all of this, killing the hostility. Do you remember anywhere in the Gospels that we have any knowledge of Jesus killing anything? We don't know that Jesus went hunting with his dad and killed a deer. 
We don't see Jesus killing a snake, which we would all say, hey, that's totally justified. We don't even know about Jesus killing a bug. There's nowhere that Jesus got up to preach and that we have record of one of the apostles saying to the other, he's killing it. Nothing. But the one time in the scriptures Jesus kills anything, we should take note of it. And he kills hostility. That's important. The cross of Jesus Christ has knocked down every wall of hostility between us and God and us and one another. I want you to look real quickly with me at at how Paul expresses this in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So while the wall, the physical wall that divided the inner court and the outer court and the temple, while this wall wasn't torn down until about AD 70 at the destruction of the temple, We know that this wall was spiritually destroyed somewhere around AD 33 when Jesus died on the cross because everything that that wall represented, Christ died for. So Paul is saying to the Jews here, all of the reasons that you have held and that you have stood in condemnation over the Gentiles, all of the reasons and excuses that you have had prejudice over them, Jesus died for all of them. Every single one. Jesus' shed blood covers over and cancels that debt. He knocked down that wall. So please hear this. As God's people, as followers of Jesus Christ, if there is any wall that divides us, we've built that wall. If there is any wall that separates and brings division among God's people, we are the ones responsible for either attempting to rebuild what Christ already broke down or just build it in our own way. Race, age, intelligence, denomination, um, economic status, ethnicity. It doesn't matter. You pick a barrier and Jesus tore it down with the cross. Listen to what John Piper says in his work, Race and Cross. Let us dwell on this, that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people groups to each other in one body in Christ. This too was the design of the death of Christ. Think on this. Christ died to take away enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice 
and indifference. Jesus died to take all of those things away from your heart toward all other persons who are in Christ by faith, no matter what the race. We are now, Paul says, fellow citizens with the saints. We are now joined together. And if you look at verse 22, Paul expresses this in a very, very powerful way. We are now being built together into a dwelling place for God. In God's sight, there is no distinction for those who are in Christ. If you turn like one page backwards into Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, we were here maybe like six months ago in these verses. In Galatians 3 verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is not slave or free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, Paul says, here there is no Greek or Jew, there isn't circumcised and uncircumcised, there's not barbarian and Scythian, there's not slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Every wall every barrier, every prejudice. Jesus died to destroy those things so that we now might be built together. It's important to understand that not just the most efficient, not just the greatest, but the only way to overcome disunity, the only way that, like Paul says, the only path toward killing the hostility that is between us, Uh, The only way that we will be built together in Christ is if we, the people of God, have a constantly renewed and fresh vision of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is all about how we view the cross. So let's take a minute this morning and, and maybe raise our awareness or refresh our vision of the cross, which the Apostle Paul tells us brought us near to God. The cross broke the chains of hostility between us and God and us and one another, and the cross reconciled us back to God and to each other. Let's talk about the cross. First of all, historically, it is no longer even a debated issue. It is historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. It's not even debated anymore. And and it's also not debatable that it was very, very public and it was very, very visible. I think that sometimes we get the idea that this was kind of an off away from everyone event. Um, you know, and part of that is, and, and we don't do this uh, with wrong motive, but we will sing things or read things that maybe put images in our mind that maybe they're not so accurate. If you'll remember, uh, you know, we, we've sung a song before that starts, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. It's a beautiful song. And you know what, if you're standing here in 2016, halfway around the world, it was on a hill far away. But if you lived in Jerusalem the day that Jesus died, it was not on a hill far away. 
Many of you know that our family goes to Charleston, South Carolina a lot. My in-laws live there. I love that city. One of the things I love about Charleston is, especially if you go downtown, you can stand in the middle of the street and look one direction, and here's a courthouse. You can turn a little bit this way, and here's a marketplace. You can turn a little bit this way, and here's a church. There is all kinds of things, like right there together. Okay, that is what Jesus lived through and walked through the day that he died. His trial, his beating, them leading him through the city. This was very, very public and it was very, very visible. And it is not even debated anymore. Jesus Christ, very publicly, very visibly, died on a cross. What does all this mean theologically? Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus did not die because uh, the authorities came up with a plan and, and it slipped past Jesus and he got caught and, and there you go. No, the Son of God willfully laid his life down because you and I, none of us could atone, we couldn't pay for our sin. Because the only thing that would do that is the blood of a perfect sacrifice. The blood of something sinless, someone sinless. And so Jesus came and lived a perfect life, laid his life down so that he might be the atonement for our sin. He bore our punishment and our shame. He took our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took Christ who knew no sin and put all of the sin of the world on him on the cross so that you and I, through faith in him, might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, look at what Peter says. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Theologically, Jesus died on the cross so that you and I might have life. We might have victory over sin. Experientially. Like, what does this mean in our lives now? Like, what does this mean on like Wednesday afternoon when I'm at work or Friday night when I'm with my family? We realize the effects of the cross through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, through the willful act of Jesus shedding his blood, we now have peace with God and with one another. We see, we feel, we experience the effects of the cross through our relationship with Christ. Hear this. Everything that we've talked about up to this point, okay, us being reconciled back to God, the walls of hostility being broken down between us, anything that we've talked about up to now, none of this is possible without the cross. None of it. None of this is possible without Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying for our sin. But now understand this. None of this is present without the church. 
None of it. Am I saying that the church delivers this? No. But what I'm telling you is, is the church is the manifestation of this. None of this exists. None of this is present without the church. Friends, if you read the New Testament, if you start in the book of Acts and you just travel, the New Testament operates under the assumption that every Christian, every person who would ever call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ would be an active member of a local church. Read Acts chapter 2 verses 41 through 47 and try to somehow work in there that maybe there's the assumption that, oh, there'd be somebody that wasn't a part of this as a believer. You can't do it. The apostle Paul, Peter, John, James, the writer of Hebrews, everybody is operating under the assumption that all Christians would be an active and growing part of the body of Christ. You may have heard the argument. You may have even made the argument. I've heard the argument several times. Well, I'm not really a member of a church. Like, I don't really go to church like on Sundays or anything, but I'm part of the universal church. So let me first of all put this to you mildly. Um, That's a misunderstanding of the New Testament. But now let me put it to you bluntly. That's hogwash. It doesn't work that way. In fact, I met a guy yesterday at Madison Street Festival who I thought my head was going to spin around backwards. He came and sought me out because I guess he knew who I was and he just wanted to like, he just wanted to see if he can like, what's the words I'm looking for? He wanted to get a rise out of me. And he almost did because it was really late in the day and I'd been there since like six o'clock. But where this guy was going was... He said this to me because I asked him, I said, well, hey, where are you part of the church? Where are you invested? Uh, I'm not like a member of just one church. Like, I know what you're trying to ask me. And this was his words to me. I church hop. I mean, I go I'm all over the place. I like to listen here and there and so on and so forth. Well, in the next breath, he was telling me that he appreciated pastors like me because of the authority that God has placed on me and the responsibilities, which is very, very heavy with the moral decay going on in our country. And so he feels for me, lead on brother. You got a lot of weight on your shoulders. And I said, wait a minute, time out. How can you, Mr. Church Hopper, tell me that you actually believe or acknowledge that the scriptures say, not only have I had spiritual authority placed on on me and in me, but that I have some responsibility to someone like you when you, on the other breath, are not putting yourself under the submission and authority of the local church. High five. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't there to debate the man. I was there, I guess, to try and help him understand that that assumption is very, very off base. And here's why. It is through the local church that we visibly and tangibly live out our union with Christ. That's where it happens. I mean, I have brothers and sisters in Christ that I've met in India. I have brothers and sisters in Christ in Guatemala that I love very dearly. But I cannot live out on a day-to-day basis a relationship that people can witness that shows what this union with Christ 
looks like. I read something a couple weeks ago, and I thought, that's kind of weird. And I thought about it more and more, and I was like, I think that's spot on. This article said the local church doesn't need any more ninjas. And I got to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know that we have enough ninjas, um, you know, at least on, a, on one hand. I've, I've never actually seen one. But the local church, I started thinking about this, and I realized we do have ninjas. And here's why. There are some of us who, and, and I don't know, you guys, you might be a ninja. There are some of us who, it's like we know exactly how long to wait to show up on Sunday. That, whoo, you swoop in. And like, I haven't seen you at all. And then I get up here like right now and look, and I go, hey, there's so-and-so. But then I'll get up there to close the service. Amen. I close my Bible and I haven't even gotten it shut. And I think I'm going to go say hey to so-and-so that I haven't seen. And whew, you're gone. And I'm like, how do they do that? And I'll ask somebody, did you see so-and-so? I didn't see him. I'm like, well, I saw him. I saw him. I don't know how they did it. You know what? We don't need any ninjas. We need family members. See, not only what you need, but what others need from you is to know that you're there. That we can walk with one another. That when we are in need, we can lean on each other. We can cry out to each other. I need help. I can't do this on my own anymore. If you are a ninja, I still like you. But maybe use your ninja skills for something else. The Apostle Paul, though, he doesn't bring up ninjas, but he uses like multiple metaphors throughout the New Testament and even throughout Ephesians so that we have all these opportunities to go, okay, I get it. Because Paul talks about stones in a temple. You know what happens if you start yanking stones out of a wall? Eventually it's going to collapse. He talks about being members of a family, citizens in a kingdom, members of a body. All of this is rooted in our understanding and our view of the cross of Jesus Christ. That changes how we view everything. It changes how we view the world. And I love that Paul, again, says, remember who you once were, but more importantly, remember who you are now. You know what someone's driving at when they say, hey, remember who you were, but now remember who you are. What he's saying is this is an identity issue. And maybe we're all getting confused about who we actually are in Christ. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not, first and foremost, an American. You're not. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not, first and foremost, white or black. You are not, first and foremost, praise God, a Republican or a Democrat. You are not, first and foremost, an Alabama fan or an Auburn fan. The Lord help all of you. You're not a Southerner. You're not any of those things, first and foremost. Am I saying that you are not white or black? No, I'm not saying that. You are. But first and foremost, you are an adopted son or daughter of God. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We are transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's your identity. And as a Christian, you are also a vital part 
of the body of Christ, which we call the church. And the church is the visible representation of the effects of the cross. The church is the visible representation of the effects of the cross. I said a minute ago that we realize the effects of the cross through our relationship with Christ. Well, folks, those effects are made visible by us coming together as God's people, the church. Our union with Christ is made visible through his church. The church, the visible representation of the effects of the cross, that God has reconciled who those, those who were once opposed to each other, knocking down every wall that's between them. If you want more on this, read John 13, 34 and 35. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 21. Through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. Aliens, foreigners, immigrants become citizens. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, strangers don't just get acquainted. Strangers become family. This is why you can go to Guatemala or India or Rwanda and meet a brother or sister in Christ and there instantaneously be a kindred spirit and connection because we both know that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have changed us. But that may be why it ought to be happening not just when I go to India and Guatemala and Rwanda and wherever else, but when I go to the grocery store. Through the cross, strangers become families. And now, get, get this one. Idolaters, that's us, don't just become worshipers. Idolaters become the temple of the living God. We used to be the ones who worshipped anything and everything other than the one thing that was worthy of our worship. And now, through Jesus Christ, we are being made into the temple of the living God. We are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Those who were divided become one in Christ. Friends, if the church doesn't reflect this, the local church doesn't reflect this, who's going to? As God's people, if any wall still divides us, we're the ones that built it. And I would encourage you this morning, I would encourage all of us this morning to take on an approach with the Lord that says, God, if there is any wall of hostility between me and my brother or my sister, that you would do whatever you need to do in my life to level it to the ground. But before you pray that, know it's probably going to require you do something painful. It's probably going to require this big ball called humility crashing right through a wall of pride. But it will be worth it. 
hopefully we look around this room more and more every day, every week, every month, and we look around and we go, man, we are different. But also that we understand that different does not mean divided. Who really cares about looking into a room and seeing all these people who look and act and think the same? How hard is that to do? We're also equal. But you know, we should care as as Christians, we should care less about the fact that we are equal and more about the fact that supernaturally, more mind-blowing, we're not just equal, we are joined. That we are one in Christ. Paul says that he has made us one. Jesus Christ has made us one. One, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has reconciled us back to the Father and to our brothers and sisters. Jesus is building us together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. May we be a people who are actively living and praying and seeking the Lord, saying, God, help me to be a leveler of any wall of hostility that begins to grow between your people. Because we, the church, are the visible representation of the effects of the cross of Jesus Christ and the union that we have with God because of him. Let's live that out. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to thank you and praise you that while we were still sinners in the midst of our rebellion, that you sent your Son to show us what it looks like to to truly live, to die in our place, to give us life, Lord, to to bring us peace. To give us hope where we had none. Lord, we pray this morning that if there's unconfessed sin in our lives... If there's anything that Christ died to remove from between us in our relationship with you, and and yet we have run back to that, Lord, we pray this morning that you would bring brokenness, bring conviction, but Lord, that you would also, through confession and repentance, bring restoration and healing. We thank you for your mercy and grace. But I want to do something right now that we don't do very often in here. And I want to just ask you, with your head bowed, your eyes closed, 
if you're here this morning and, and you would just confess, whether it be between you and God or you and a brother or sister, if you would just confess, Brian, I have to be honest that whether through anger or frustration or bitterness or resentment, there's hostility in my heart and in my life. If if that's you, I just want to ask you to slip your hand up for a moment so that I can pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I know that you see every hand that's gone up. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, whatever the the anger, the frustration, the resentment, the bitterness, Lord, we pray that we would be able to lay that at the foot of the cross. Lord, knowing that justice, that belongs to you. But Lord, that you would replace that hostility in our hearts, Lord, with mercy and forgiveness and peace. Father, that you would give us the courage that if there's a wall between us and our brother and sister in Christ, that we would just keep swinging until it is, it's no longer there. Lord, we can't do that on our own power. But we thank you that through through Jesus, you've already given us victory. Lord, help us, guide us, empower us. Lord, give us courage. Lord, our desire is that people would look at our lives, that they would look at our church and they would see you. Lord, this morning we thank you for our brothers and sisters all over this city. Lord, we pray that you are breaking down walls between them and and each other, but God, also between all of us. Lord, as your people, you would use us to transform this place where we live. In just a moment, we're going to respond to God by singing a song of of praise to Him together. During that time, if, if you need to come to the foot of the cross and pray, we just invite you to come. If you're here this morning and need someone to pray with you, would like for someone to share with you what it means to have a relationship with God, to put your faith and trust in Christ. Some of our pastors, elders, leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to talk with you, pray with you. Lord Jesus, in these moments, we lift you up and exalt you. There's no one like you. There's no one worthy of praise but you. So we pray that you would be exalted through our songs, but more importantly, through our hearts and lives.
Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.